We hear a lot about self-expression and self-fulfillment. What about self-control? Day by day, others are watching how we handle steady pressures of everyday life when it comes time to choose leaders. The ability to control one's passions in order to execute a worthy plan rises to the surface. Our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtson, begins this discussion sharing a personal incident that is enough to destroy any preacher's self-control as he gets ready to speak on Sunday morning. My cough was bothering me last night, so I was hacking all night long, and in fact went out and slept on the couch so I wouldn't give Mary a terrible night. And Then I got all dressed, and it was an early morning meeting, a breakfast meeting, so I got Josh and Janae up, and I got them dressed and got them out in the Oldsmobile, got my guitar in the trunk, got my trumpet in the trunk, and I was all ready to go, and I needed my wallet because Josh wanted to go out to eat, and so I wanted to have cash for that, so I'm going to use a check at DT, so I went running back into my study, threw open my door, reached in and grabbed my drawer, grabbed my checkbook, went, sat down in my big vinyl chair that Mary got me several years ago for my birthday present, and I sat down and yuck. You see, my cat that I ran over a few weeks ago by accident has had bladder problems ever since I did that. And man, my rear end was loaded with cat, you know what. I mean, I went running to the house, rip off my pants, put on another pair of pants jump in the Oldsmobile, start driving to DTs, get in that 30-mile-an-hour zone, slow down to 30, doing everything just right. It's pouring down rain. The rain's, the rain's blowing, so I got my wipers going. The wipers are going like this, and suddenly one of the, the, the right wiper caught the left wiper. I hear this terrible grinding noise. Joshua and Janae go, ah, you know what's happening? It was like the windshield had cracked. And now one of my windshield wipers doesn't work. And, and we drive into the parking lot of DT as Janae very quietly says, you know, Dad, this really isn't your day. And I think it is not my day because I want to talk to you today about self-control. And when you sat down on cat pee and when your windshield wipers don't work very well, it's really hard to have self-control and to be temperate. But those are the two words we want to talk about today. I want to talk to you about self-control and I want to talk to you about temperance. Just so you'll know where we're going. What we're doing is we're talking about spiritual leadership. Because I believe that there's a crisis of leadership, and I believe there's a crisis of leadership in our own families. There's a crisis of leadership in our church. There's a crisis of leadership in our land. There's a crisis of leadership in our world. And I believe that you can make the difference. I believe that you can become the leaders that we need. We started out talking about the need, if we're going to be leaders, that it begins with our character. Remember, it's about character. We talked about building a character that would be right with God. We talked about this vertical relationship with God. As we talked about building a good reputation with unbelievers, we talked about the fact that we needed to begin with our vertical relationship with God. And I talked to you about three important things. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to cause you to become a lover of the good. You need to allow Christ's Spirit to come inside of you so that you become someone who's devoted, who is in love with what is really good. We also talked about the fact that you need to become someone who's committed to the right. You become an upright person. That you become someone who deep in your soul is conformed to God's standards. And finally, we wrap it all together in our vertical relationship. The Lord wants us to be someone who's holy. Someone who's set apart, especially for God. Someone who recognizes that they're his child. That they've been adopted into the family of God. Then we talked the last time we were together about if we're going to make this thing work, we need to be building a solid reputation with unbelievers. I talked about the fact that there's a great crisis among evangelicals. One of the greatest crises of our day is you don't realize it or not, but you have been preached out from almost from the time you've been born in this country is that truth and standards and morality is up to you. That you're the one that decides what's right and what is wrong. You have been exposed to just a tremendous blitz against your personality. For example, if you're with somebody, you begin to develop a relationship, and you begin to feel tremendous feelings for them, and you begin to feel just tremendous passion, and we call that passion in our society love, and you're out on a Friday night, and and the love lights just burn very powerfully, and you go back to your home, and, and all mom and dad are out, or everyone's gone. If you're an adult, you're all alone. Our society says that if you have that passion for one another... 
If the music is playing nice and the drums are playing just the right rhythmical beat, if the French horns come in with a beautiful romantic melody, if a steel guitar begins to play, if you're feeling it, then it's got to be right. It's got to be right. Because we don't believe there's anything called absolute truth. Truth and morality is something I decide. We live in a society that says if you're out with a bunch of people on Friday nights and, and people start drinking, and they drink a lot, we're in a society that says, man, if this will make me feel good, you see, you see, I'm a shy, reserved person, and I'm kind of uptight, and I hold everything in. But if I drink a little bit, then I get excited, and, and I become the life of the party, and I become boisterous, and, and I become someone that can tell funny stories, and I become someone that can dance much better than I could ever dance before. In other words, if I get drunk a little bit, I really feel good. And our society says if you feel good, then just do it. Our society says that if you're, if you're working with people and somebody really ticks you off, I mean, they really irritate you. I mean, they do stuff day in and day out that just makes you furious and makes you angry. You live in a society that says, man, if you feel like, if you feel like letting them just have it verbally, go ahead. Just pour out your spirit on them. I mean, just let it all out. In fact, you know, it's unhealthy for you to repress all that angry, violent stuff. I mean, you need to let out that inner self and you need to just pour it out. And man, if you want to hit them, better hit a pillow because they might be bigger than you. But go ahead and let it out. You see, you have been preached that and proclaimed through the media, through your friends, through your environment, that you determine what is right within yourself. Subjective, right and wrong. And you express the meaning of your life by if it feels good, do it. I want you to think hard about that. Because I want you to know that God stands diametrically opposed to that kind of a way of life. And I want you to, I want to nail it down in your mind because you're only going to get to live this life once. You're only going to get to live on this planet. You're only going to get to let that heart beat so many times. You're only going to get going, only going to, get to breathe so many times. You're only going to live so many years and you're only going to get to do it one time. So you can't afford to say, well, you know, I kind of blew it a little bit, didn't follow the right standard, and my life came unglued. Now let's start all over again, because you're not going to be able to start all over again. Now Christ can forgive, and Christ can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but I want you to know that in this life, time can be lost, opportunities can be lost, foolishness can suck your very physical life away from you. And because I love you, I want you to not be foolish, I want you to be wise. And God tells us, you see, our daddy in heaven cares so much for us that this church stuff is not just about a vertical relationship with him on Sunday morning. It's about a vertical relationship with him Monday through Saturday. And it also is about a relationship with him that makes you wise in the way that you live your life day by day. You see, when the Apostle Paul talked to spiritual leaders, I want you to open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because what we're doing is we're going through these 20 or so characteristics that the Apostle Paul has given to us. What I started out with, I went through Paul's list and I picked out the characteristics that dealt with our vertical relationship with God. To be someone who loves the good, someone who is upright, and someone who is, is under the control of the Spirit, someone that is, is really in love with their Savior, there's someone who is holy. Then we started talking about the horizontal relationships that we have with our fellow man. We're beginning, first of all, with ourselves. Now I want to talk to you about the ingredients of how you build a good reputation. And I'm going to talk about personal character qualities that need to become the descriptive adjectives that describe our lives. Then I'm going to go on and I'm going to talk about the characteristics that the Apostle Paul says should guard our families, should characterize our family. And then I'm going to talk to you about the qualities that should characterize the way that we interrelate together. So we're not skipping over anything that Paul talks about, but I'm trying to put it in a form where we focus, first of all, on our relationship with God. Then we focus on our personal relationship with our own individual life in our walk with God. And then we're going to talk about our life in our family and then our life with our extended society. Today I want to talk to you about two very important words that the Apostle Paul uses that should describe your inner life. Number one, it should be a wise life. It should be a life that is controlled by wisdom, a life that's controlled by prudence, and a life that's controlled and characterized by self-control. And then we're going to talk about a second word, which means temperate. Now, those words, wisdom, prudence, and temperance, nothing could be more boring than those words. 
In fact, Shakespeare said the only problem with a virtuous life is there's nothing more boring in storytelling than a virtuous life. You see, if you're a novelist, if you want to hold people's attention, it's really hard to hold people's attention with a good, wise, sober, temperate story. You see, there's something about us that we get excited about blood and violence and sexual immorality and chaos, and, and even though it's bad, it's exciting. And one of the things that's hard in the arts, that's why most of the movies that you see are not about the Waltons, because the Waltons moves pretty slow. I mean, it's pretty slow. In fact, you just asked a junior hire to sit down and watch the Waltons. It's awfully tough to take. I mean, you can miss it several weeks in a row, and you haven't missed a thing. It's the same thing all over again. Good night, good night, good night. <laughs> you see, in the arts, there's nothing more boring than virtue and goodness. But you see, what we, you see, what that shows is what's inside of us. We tend to be scintillated by what is foolish and chaotic and crazy. But the Lord wants to create a new you inside of you that gets excited about things that will bring health to you, will bring good to you. And so the Apostle Paul says that when we talk about spiritual leaders, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he uses a word that should characterize our leaders I'm laying a foundation of the guts of what is a spiritual leader and what does he look like and, and how does he act and what does he like in interpersonal relationships. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that these kind of leaders, these overseers in the church, must be blameless, above reproach, no water gates undercover. Then they need to be a one-woman kind of a man, which, which we're going to talk about when we talk about family relationships. Then I want you to see the next two words, temperate and self-control. Those are our words for today. They need to be, first of all, they need to be temperate and self-controlled. I'm going to pick up the word self-control because that's a more general word that the Greek language uses to describe someone who has a wise thought life, a wise life, a wise inner life. Turn over to Titus chapter 1. The Apostle Paul talked to Titus about these same attributes. Look what it says in Titus chapter 1. Rather he, the elder, must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, and here's our word again, one who is self-controlled. And then the last word is someone who is disciplined. And those are our words that we're looking at today. Just so you girls won't feel left out, or you ladies, I want you to look at verse uh, chapter 2, and it says that in verse 3 of chapter 2, likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. There's our vertical relationship with God, ladies. They are to not be slanderers or addicted to much wine, which is what we're going to talk about in our next study. I'm going to spend all of our next study just starting in Genesis, going through what the Bible teaches about alcohol, one of the, one of the most powerful drugs in our day. But what does the Bible really teach about that? We're going to talk about that. Not addicted to much wine. But I want you to read a little bit further for this week. But teach the young people what is good so that they can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Now look at the next word. The older women, the mature women, are to teach the younger girls and the younger women to be, and there's our word again, self-controlled. It's the word wise. It means wise in your thought life. Now, there's one book in the Bible that states as its, as its fundamental purpose in its, in its writing, the fundamental reason why this book was written is to help you to become wise. It's the one book in the Bible where your heavenly father just sits down with you as his son and daughter. And he says, I'm going to talk to you about horizontal living. You might think that I'm just interested in, in holy, you know, like music and worship and that. But I want you to know that I'm interested in how you use your money. I'm interested in how you use your mouth. I'm interested in how you, how you act sexually. I'm interested in how you, how you relate in education. I'm interested about everything in your life. There's one book in the Bible where God sits down with his kids and he says, my purpose is to help you to become a self-controlled, wise person. That book is the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Because I want to talk to you about Proverbs puts in the Old Testament grid. And the Apostle Paul is a Jewish man that would think like this. I want to talk to you about this wisdom, this wise life, this prudent, self-controlled life from the book of Proverbs for just a few minutes. In Proverbs chapter 1, the writer begins after the title of the book, The Proverbs of Solomon, the Son of David, the King of Israel. And then he states his purpose in writing the book. I've said it to you before, but I want all of you to know that there's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. I would challenge the young people. I would challenge the young people, there are 31 chapters. So if you read one chapter a day, you'll read through the book every single month. Billy Graham, like I mentioned to you in the past, has done that almost all of his life. 
My dad carried a little copy of the Living Proverbs with him by Ken Taylor. It's a little, like, almost like a Gospel of John. My dad, has, he used his red pen, and it's completely marked up. My dad carries that with him everywhere he goes, and he reads it. And that's what internalized this life of wisdom. My dad's in his 80s, Billy's now in his 70s, and they have lived long years of living the life of wisdom. And, they, and they've had to go through all different kinds of experiences in life. And I want to challenge you, children and young people, this doesn't come easy, but you need to learn to read the book of Proverbs on a daily basis and allow it to speak to you. You say, Dave, when I first read it, it seems, what sense does it make? Think about it. Talk to your parents about it. Talk to your you know, older brothers and sisters in Christ about it. I guarantee you, I made a commitment when I was a, when I was a teenager that I was going to internalize the teaching of that book. And man, am I glad I built my family on that. Boy, am I glad I built my personal life on that. Because this book says that the purpose of writing this material was to help you to know, and I'm going to translate the second verse like this. Almost, I'm going to kind of give you my paraphrase of the, of the Hebrew text. It says that you might know that you might internalize skillful living, a wise life, which comes from discipline. Let me say it again. The purpose of this book is that you might know, that you might internalize skillful living, which can only be produced through discipline. Let me talk to you about three words that are highlighted in that verse. First of all, to know. As good Westerners, you have an idea of one of the major failings of our educational system is we think someone knows when they have the right information in their head. For example, when I teach at the Word of Life Bible Institute, there's 600 kids out there. It's impossible to give them essay questions. I'd be grading from now until eternity. So you give them all true and four false tests. Do you kids ever stop and think about the fact, and mom and dad, do you ever stop to think about that in a true false test, you can know absolutely nothing and get at least 50% right? If you're good at Las Vegas, you can probably get 70% right without knowing anything. And how many of you have ever had multiple guess tests? You know, you don't have to know that much. You got one out of four chances usually to get it right. But in the American society, we reward people if they can listen, those that can listen to a lecture, those that can read a book, and if they can push a button in their mind, if they can remember what they heard and what they read, and they can push the button again on a test and regurgitate it all out, we say they know it. It's intellectual knowledge. I want to tell you something. That is just the beginning of knowing something. That's just the first step. Getting the information in your mind is just the first step. For example, moms and dads that have teenagers learning to drive. How many of you would like to send your teenager to the driver's ed course? They read through the driver's ed manual from the state of Texas. They read through their book. They memorize all the details. They take the test and they pass it. And then they give your kid the license. Never driving a car at all. You want to drive with them? How many of you want to drive with a kid that just passed the intellectual test reading just the driver's manual, never drive the car at all? You say, man, I don't want to ride with them. They don't, they don't know anything. That's what some of you adults would say. They don't really know how to drive. And that'll just drive home to you the difference in the way that we think about knowledge and the way that the Bible thinks about knowledge. You see, the Bible says that we don't really know something until it's into our hands and into our eyes and into our feet, into our actions. And that's what's gravely missing in the evangelical church. Maybe it's missing in your life and my life. You see, what the unbelieving world is saying is you evangelicals talk about being born again. It doesn't change your life. It's just head knowledge because nothing happens. And I don't want that. I have enough hypocrisy. You see, I don't see any change. You're not any difference in business. I can't count on your word any more than I can count on someone that never goes to church at all. Like I had business people say, man, I'd rather deal with an unbeliever. At least I know they might rook me, and I don't even have any false expectations. We have got to turn that around. You see, we have got to produce a generation that where, where there's a whole lot more than 7 or 8% who think that right is really right and that wrong is really wrong. And it doesn't make any difference whether I feel like doing it or not. If it's right, it's right, and I must do it. Because my feelings don't determine reality. God does. You see how different that thinking is? And the Bible is saying that when you know something, it means that you've taken it into your mind, but it's permeated into your very character. If your Christianity, your relationship with Christ is not permeating your character, then you don't got it. You don't have it. That's what I talked about the last time we were together. You see, if your life if you don't really have this thing in your soul, 
You see, it needs to change the way you live. Because you know Christ. You are someone who Christ walks with you everywhere you go. And he can change you. He can change everything in your life. He can help you, and he will. And you don't know it until it's happening. In fact, it'll totally change your whole approach to Christianity. I want to ask you there teaching Sunday school. You need to really think hard about this. It's an awesome responsibility, and I want to encourage you that are teaching Sunday school. I want to. But if you're watching TV on Wednesday night, you do not believe in the next generation of young people. I'd just be hard on you. You just don't believe it because there's no action. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have release from stress. I'm just saying you need to get really serious. You can be part, as an adult generation, of totally changing the lives of the next generation. And you can become an adult in their life that where, where they grew up as a little kid and says, man, I met somebody that really knew Jesus Christ. It was the real thing. It was really doing something in their life, and I'm so glad they spent time with me. Do it. That's when you know it. That's when you know it. Somebody's here, you know, when I talk to a little kid and, and, I, and I lead them to Christ, something happens inside of me. It becomes real all of a sudden. And every one of you can do that that are, that are older. You just have to have a listening ear and a caring heart. The scripture says that if we talk about, man, we need to reach the next generation, but we don't do it. The scripture says you don't care about the next generation. You see, for knowledge in the Hebrew culture was the real thing. It got into their feet. It got into their hands. Now, what were they supposed to know? The next word that you use there is they are to know wisdom. Now, when we use the word English, the English word wisdom is one of those big abstract words. You know, what do you mean by being a wise person? Usually we mean someone that has gray hair. They've had a lot of life experience. Usually we mean they've been successful. Usually they mean, we mean that there's somebody that I'd like to go to and talk to because they give me good advice. We use the word wisdom of all that. One of the things that I like the Hebrew people for is they like to get into the nitty-gritty. They were real practical, down-to-earth people. The Greeks tended to be more cerebral, more into their mind. But the Hebrews, when they used language, they used language that really gripped people. And the word that they chose in their culture to represent wisdom was a word that would be used like this. They would say, this person is a wise carpenter. This person, and what they would mean by that is, this person is a skillful carpenter. When I came to Midlothian, I knew zip about what was inside a wall of a building. I knew zip about building a house. You see, I was raised in a family with my dad. My dad, uh, if something went wrong with the plumbing, you called the plumber. If something went wrong with the electricity, you called the electrician. In fact, for most of my life, my dad had a whole maintenance part of his organization. You just called up the head of maintenance, say there's a leak here, and they'd take care of it for you. You didn't have to know any of that stuff. When I came to Midlothian, you know, Midlothian, everybody knew everything about anything, and, and you never called anybody to do anything. My dad did one thing in his house when he built it up in Strune Lake. He, he hung a picture in the basement. He went downstairs and took a 16 nail, which is a nail about that long, which he used for framing houses, not hanging pictures. He took the 16, put it into his wall, and drove it. Nothing happened. It, it, the hammer bounced off the nail. So what do you do? He got a bigger hammer, reared back harder, and drove the 16 into the wall, hung the picture up, and he went on a two-week meeting. Went away on an evangelistic tour for two weeks. He came back. We had Noah's flood in the basement. I mean, we had six inches of water in the basement of our house because he drove a 16 right through the main copper water line, the whole house. My dad is not a wise carpenter. When I was building my house, I remember when we were framing it up, I was working with Bill Brown and the different ones were there. And it was back in the days before you did it all on the ground and then sand it up. We were doing it the old way where you stand it up and then you, you toenail the, the studs into the base, uh, the base the, you know, on the, in the concrete. So we're doing that. And I'm saying to Bill, I said, Bill, man, how in the world do you hit these nails? Man, there's another stud in the way. Every time I hit one, it knocks a stud that's next to me out of the way. He says, Dave, you've got to throw it in at an angle. I said, Throw it in at an angle. Man, I'm just trying to throw, just hit the head of the nail. He says, no, you just throw the hammer in at an angle and you can do it. Because he was skillful as a carpenter. You know what? After we framed the house and after we worked for six months, I knew exactly what he meant. Man, I could throw the hammer this way and this way. I could throw it in just about any angle you want. I started to become a wise carpenter, skillful in the use of a hammer. And that's where the Hebrews used the word. They use it a second way. They use it as someone that was skillful in building a building, a carpenter, a tradesman. They also use it of a skilled sailor. 
I'll never forget when I was in high school, I went down to, uh, in the Caribbean to, uh, to Nassau one time, and we were staying with this family. They had a teenage girl, and they had a sailboat. And uh, I said to her one day, can I go out in the sailboat? I'd like to take my dad on the sailboat. So we went out on the sailboat. But before we went, she said, Dave, do you know how to sail the sailboat? I said, oh, yes, I know how to sail it. I said, she said, where did you learn to sail? I said, on the, on the, on the, the seas of New York, Scruton Lake, New York. She looked at me and she said, you know what? This is not Scruton Lake. This is the Atlantic Ocean. There are mega differences between Scruton Lake and the Atlantic Ocean. I said, I can take care of it. I went out, took my dad out. We went out for about two hours. I dragged the sailboat over a coral reef about three times, just about tore the bottom out of the thing. I remember one time I came about, the wind came about about the same time, knocked the whole boat over. My dad went over the front end. He disappeared for what I thought was about two minutes. I came sputtering up. I said, oh, no, I've killed the international director of life plus my dad. I'm not a skillful sailor. When I came back in, the boat's tattered up. The girl got it all fixed up. The next day she said, you want to go out? I said, yeah, let's go out. She knew the name of every part of that sailboat. I mean, she had technical name for everything, even the knots. I mean, you had to tie special knots, and she had names for every one of the knots. She even had names for the wind and the way the wind was hitting the sail. But you know what? We went out into the ocean, and we sailed around, and we got to our destination, and we got back. You know why? She was a wise sailor. She was skillful in the handling of a sailboat. Now, I want to share something with you. You don't have to be a good sailor. In fact, my dad's 82 years old, and he's still not a very skillful sailor. And what you do is, you just sail with someone else who is. You don't have to be a skilled carpenter. Just get someone else to build your house. But I've got news for you. Every one of you are involved in this thing called life. And every one of you need to become a skilled builder of your life. Every one of you needs to be a skilled sailor towards the destination that God wants you to have. And it's not just up for grabs. If you build a house the way you feel like it, without the skill and without the planning, it's going to be a disaster. You don't pile lumber and just start throwing it together. You'll be like me out in the Atlantic Ocean. If you're just sailing, oh, we'll just learn, the, you know, we'll just try it and let it, let it go. You'll drown. And that's what God's, God's word wants you to realize. It doesn't make any difference whether you feel it's right or not. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And if it's right, it's right. And you need to let an external standard from the word of God communicate to you what is a skillful life. That's what I'm pleading with you to do. That's what Proverbs does. It lays out, this is right and this is wrong. This is wise and this is foolish. This is a skillful, artistic way to do it and this is not the way to do it. Now you say, Dave, how am I going to ever achieve that wisdom? Well, most of you aren't going to do it, to be honest with you. For the same reason that most of you will not exercise regularly every day, for the same reason that most of you will not ever really develop your talents to the fullest. You know why? Because most of you will not do, which is a very difficult word in our society, most of you will not be disciplined. Discipline is a negative word in our society. I mean, we, we don't like the word. We live in a society that says, you know, you can just do it. My older brother, when he, we were growing up, my brother decided he wanted to become skillful on the piano. And so he showed with, he shared with you how every single day he would come home from school and he would just practice hour after hour. I mean, he would play Mozart's opuses and, and I still can't hear some of that music. You know how it is when somebody's practicing and they come to the hard part and you're sitting there going, come on, come on, come on, come on, you can do it. And then they get to the hard part and they blow it and then they start all over again and you go, oh no. I still, you know, classical music is supposed to, for the most part, you know, help you to be calm and, and sedate. For me, it's, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. My brother really disciplined himself on the piano. He practiced hour after hour after hour. But I decided, you see, I was born one of the baby boomers, and I was born right in the, the heart of the baby booming time, and I decided as a baby boomer that you don't need to have discipline in your piano playing. That you don't need someone like Mrs. Gerhardt, who was the guru of pianists on the East Coast. You don't need an older person to teach you how to do it. You see, you need to have free artistic expression. And you don't need Thompson's little book for little fingers. And you don't need all this playing, this old cruddy stuff from dead composers. You just need to let it express itself. So I'm in, a lot of you don't realize it. I've been with you for many years, but a lot of you didn't know I was a pianist. But I want to share with you today my piano playing. 
You heard my brother a few weeks ago, it's time you heard me. Did some of you recognize that? Did you recognize that? Well, I know most of you have not gone to Ger uh, Juilliard School of Music. That is one of the modern expressions. It's something I just wrote a couple weeks ago that is absolutely nothing. Because that's what an undisciplined piano playing is. It's nothing. It's just noise. You see, you can't become a pianist without practice. I could take anything you want to do. I could take basketball. One of the major problems in Midlothian athletics is discipline, fundamentals. See, I was raised back in the East Coast where we have hundreds of kids coming to Word of Life to play basketball. We'd have little kids coming up from the city. And I, I watched little kids, little kids that weren't that tall. They would be up, they would be in this gymnasium. And they would get up where you shoot your, your layups. And I would see little six-year-old kids that would not be pushing it like this and they'd not be jumping up. They'd be squared up to the basket, little kids, with their hand in the ball right, never their palm in the ball, just their fingertips. And these little kids would be sitting there flipping their wrists right straight up, straight up, straight up, watching their eyes, just the way Billy teaches his kids. And I'd see these little kids from the city doing that when they were just tiny kids. And I'd be looking at them and saying, man, you don't even have the strength to get it up there. You know, I need to put you on a stool to get up. But they'd have all their form right. I'd watch these little kids. They'd be shooting jump shots, learning exactly how to do it, squared up to the basket. We had kids come in from Indiana. Man, you talk about passes. They had every one of their passes, every single pass, chest passes, bounce passes, one hands, overheads, every one of them exactly right. They knew how to shoot. You'd watch them. When you watch them warm up, every kid could break right just as well as he could break left. They could break left just as well as they break right. Why? Because it was drilled into their very soul, the fundamentals. They were disciplined. And what Proverbs is saying, that if we're ever going to achieve in life, whether it's basketball, whether it's piano, whether it's this thing called the spiritual life, it's going to take discipline. You say, Dave, I, don't, I just can't get my quiet time in. Discipline. Discipline. Dave, I don't have enough time to pray. Discipline. You say, I don't feel like it. You know, aren't I a hypocrite if I don't feel like it? No. You want to be good at anything, whether you feel like it or not, you do it. You know what? When you, the action, the feeling follows the action. You say, David, isn't that, isn't that destroying my inner self? No. That's what you'll find out is that you're free to be the self that God wants you to be. When you start letting him control you and you start not being controlled by your little God inside called your feeling, and you start doing right because it's right. Because that's what the Lord wants you to do. And Proverbs wants to give you that gift. Now, if you read a little bit further in Proverbs chapter 1, it says that he wants you to know skillful living, which can only come through discipline. And then we read a little bit further, he talks about another word. He says in verse 4, he says, I want to give prudence to the simple, is the way the NIV translated. And I want to translate that naive. The word simple in our culture symbolizes someone that doesn't have enough brain power, someone that has a real low IQ. And God has a real tender heart towards someone like that. The word simple is, is not a good word here. The word that's used is someone that's inexperienced and naive. They haven't had a lot of experience in life. And what Proverbs says that he wants to develop in that inexperienced, open-minded, naive young person, excuse me, someone that will be godly, a godly cunningness is the way I translate it. God wants to create a godly cunningness in your life, a godly shrewdness. Now, we don't use, shrewdness and cunning usually to us is something that's very negative, someone that's conniving. But the, but the Hebrew uses a word that has a little bit of that flavor because God wants his children to become very sharp and, and prudent in the way that they handle their everyday life. And basically, it talks about God wants to help them to develop the ability to develop plans that will achieve success. God wants you to be able to become someone who in your open-mindedness makes a commitment to God and you start looking at your life and thinking about where it's going and where it's headed. And you start to act with forethought and discretion. You all need to think right now. If I am 10 years ago what I'm becoming now, do I like what I'm becoming? 
as you look at the young teenagers in our group, men, do you want them to be what you are right now 10 years or 15 years from now? That's a heavy assignment. Are you pleased with what you're, the way you're opening yourself up to the work of God in your life? Prudence is someone that takes careful note at where they're going. In Proverbs, the foolish person, the unwise person, just lives totally for today. Doesn't give any thought to tomorrow. Doesn't consider where action they're going to lead. They just, they just follow the passion of the second. But the wise person in Proverbs is someone who's prudent. Someone who's acting with forethought. The final word that the Apostle Paul want to talk about, we talk about a wise person, we talk about someone that's prudent, someone that acts with forethought. And by the way, in our culture, to be prudent is kind of a very negative thing. And I want you to see how, how things get twisted around. Because in the Bible, to act with forethought and to be someone that says, hey, wait a minute, that's not going to produce very good results. Man, that, that, that could be bad. In the Bible, that's not a negative thing, that's a positive thing. The final word the Apostle Paul talks about is self-control. In fact, you turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. The Apostle Paul uses this as the last fruit of the Spirit. Galatians, chapter 5. And in this chapter in Galatians, before Paul summarizes his entire list with this idea of being someone who's self-controlled, he talks about two visions of the human personality, or two um, kind of like two internal videotapes of what our personality will look like. If you remember, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 describes the way we are outside of Christ. This is the person who's not wise. This is the person who's not prudent. And notice what Paul says. The acts of the sinful nature, Galatians 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Any idiot can know what these actions are. They are sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. That is, living just for my sensual passions. They are idolatry and witchcraft. They are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions, all kinds of breakdowns in interpersonal relationships. They are envy, drunkenness, that we're going to talk about next time we get together, orgies, and then he says, etc. Things like that. He says, I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me show you how modern thinking has changed those characteristics around. You see, for most of you, most of your time out there in the unbelieving world, these are, this is not a negative list. This is a positive list. In other words, they would read it like this. Now the acts of man's nature are these. If you are sexually aroused towards someone else, and if they are a desirable object, and if you're a consenting adult, then how could it be wrong when it feels so right? I heard a song, you know, playing on the radio this week, where the whole essence of the song was, who decides what's right and what's wrong? Who decides what's good and bad? Who has the right to tell me what's right and wrong? It was all about this idea. See, if you feel it, if you have passion, I mean, if, if it's just surging through your veins and you've never felt more beautiful in your whole life and you've never felt more excited, then your culture says if you're young, do it now while you're young because you're going to die. And man, you could miss it. Man, if you don't have those thrills now, you're going to miss it. And you're the one that sets the standard. And that's wrong. The Bible says that's sexual immorality. That means you're becoming someone that's not in control of your sexual passions. And if you are not in control of your sexual passions when you're a teenager, what makes you think that you're suddenly going to get control of your sexual passions when you make a promise in front of a church or when you go out in married life as an adult? When in the world do you think you're going to control those sexual passions? You see, the world tells you that to, that to let your passions roll is the way to find life. God says no. God says, I want you to, pre I want you to have self-sacrificial love. I want you to have a love that will be willing to wait because you submit to Christ's control. Read a little bit further in the list. It says the act of sinful nature are obvious in this. Our culture says like witchcraft, for example. Our modern society doesn't call it witchcraft. Our society calls it trans-psychological experiences and exciting research into the extraterrestrial world. And across, I find it more and more as I deal with people. It's amazing. Many prominent Adults in business are highly involved in witchcraft. In fact, it just came out, the FAA that's training all of our, you know, the people that run, you know, at our airports, controlling all of our airspace. They had, they had a course, one of the dominant courses was controlled by someone deeply involved in the occult. They don't call it that. 
And praise God that it was exposed, but it just shows you. I want you to see that these permeating influences are out there. We don't call it witchcraft. We call it sensitivity training. And we call it an, 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 a very important experience that you can have that, that will take you further. And on and on it goes. They call it witchcraft. You read a little bit further. Hatred and discords, fits of rage. We call that the free expression of our emotions of anger. And the scripture says that's not going to work. You see, our culture says if you're really angry with somebody, you need to just let them have it between the eyes. God says, no, that's part of your old way of life. That's part of your old nature. Read a little bit further. Selfish ambition. Our culture says you need to be ambitious. Now, there is a holy ambition, desiring all that God desires for you. But a selfish ambition is what wants to accomplish only what will bring glory to yourself. Where God's children live for what brings glory to God. Selfish ambition will destroy us. But the world says that it's a good thing. Go for it. Get everything you can of it. The Bible says no. You need to go for what God wants you to have. And you need to care about everyone around you. You see how when we turn to the second part of the list, it says no, I don't want you to live like this. I want you to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I want you to have love. I want you to have joy. I want you to have peace. I want you to have patience. I want you to have kindness. I want you to have goodness. I want you to have faithfulness. I want you to have gentleness. I want you to have self-control. And that's the list that we need to focus on. You need to be someone who is controlled by the living Christ. I like to call it Christ control. Because the only way that we can really get control of these passions within is to freely admit that we have them. To not tell ourselves, no, I, don't, I never have any of these feelings. Grace enables us, like I've told you again and again and again, to really see ourselves the way we really are. And then it enables us to open up to the new life. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he crucified that old way of life. It died. The moment that you believed, Christ reckoned you dead to that. He assigned you in a new family. You received a new identity. And as you think about our culture, it's very strong on identity. And what I want you to understand about identity is our identity outside of Christ is not too good. Our identity outside of Christ is filled with passions that will destroy us. Our modern society does not recognize how evil those passions are. God says that old way of life is so, is so evil, it's so wicked, the only way that it could be destroyed is for Christ to shed his blood on Calvary, to cleanse it whiter than snow. You see, you need to come to the foot of the cross and let the blood of Christ, you might say, flow over you and cause you to realize how evil immorality, anger, passionate lust, hatred, jealousy. We need to allow the cross of Christ to help us to really get a hold of how evil those things are. You see, what keeps us from doing wrong is to realize what it costs our Savior to pay the penalty that we deserved for that kind of behavior. And when someone really falls in love with the Christ of the cross, they can never sin joyfully again. When someone really gets a hold of what Christ did for them on the cross, they can never sin freely again. They sin. We all fail, but you can never do it easily again. It always hurts. Because you're connected with the Savior and you realize how much it hurts him. And if you don't feel any of that, if you don't feel any of that, then you need to really examine your fundamental relationship with the living Christ. Have you really met him? Have you really understood what he did for you? Because you can't be in love with a Savior who gave his life in such an agonizing way because of evil, passionate lust. You can't be in love with a Savior and not feel badly when you break those commandments. But I also want you to remember you need to meet a Savior that rose again from the dead. Because he rose again from the dead, he can resurrect you. He can set you free from these these deadly, foolish behaviors. And it's not a life of excruciating, you know, oh, no, i got to struggle it out. It's falling in love with him, and it's allowing him to live through you. And that's what produces Christ's control in your life. And you can become someone who's wise. You can become someone who's prudent, who acts with forethought and discretion. And you can become someone who is self-controlled. The final word, and we'll be done, is the word temperate. And that's where we're going to lead to in our next study. We usually, if I said we're going to talk about temperance, what would you think of? In our culture, we use the word temperance. A temperance league is a league that helps you to control your alcohol consumption. Well, that's exactly the way the Greeks used it. 
But I want you to realize that, that it, the word temperance doesn't just mean that you've got control of alcohol, that you don't abuse it. It means literally that you're free from any beclouding influence. And a leader, a leader needs to be someone who's free from beclouding influences, which brings me full circle to what I started out with today. The beclouding influence of our day is that this book is not an objective standard of right and wrong. The beclouding influence of our day is that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as right and wrong. You decide all those things for yourself. That's a beclouding influence. It comes over you like a, like a vapor, and it starts to drug you, and it starts to put you under. The Word of God wants to shake you and wake you up. You see, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians said this. He closed Thessalonians. He closed his writing to the precious Thessalonian believers. He says this. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. It says those that party, they get party at night. He said those that are sexually immoral, they do it at night. He said those that are of the night act like the night. He's not just talking about a night, a literal night, although there's a lot of nights. A lot of our kids have seen the film The Mask about, about the night, the person that becomes like a party animal in the night. That's sensuality. It is all that I've been talking about, it, just living, just expressing yourself and going after those girls and going after those guys and going after the club and going after the drink and going after the... Just letting it all rip. That's of the night. That's of the night. The beer ads almost always communicate to you about the night. They communicate to you about the night. The night's the night. And I want you to know that the first century writers of the New Testament understood all that. The night can be a place when the passions just are let free and night can become day to you. The day can always be the night to you when you're controlled by those passions. But you know what Peter Paul said? Paul said, you're not of the night. Paul said, you're of the day. He says, therefore, I want you to be awake. I want you to be awake and I want you to be sober because you have been destined not for God's wrath, but you have been destined for eternal life. You see, the tragedy of living the old way is that most of your living is over before you're in your mid-twenties. You see, we have put all the focus just on passion living. And so the idea is, man, I need to do it with this woman now because, man, I'm running out of gas. You see, I need to have this scintillating experience now because I might never be able to have it again. If I don't have it now, I might lose it forever. Man, I need to experience all that I can experience because I've got to do it now because, because my life is ebbing away. You get up in your 80s and, man, you know, look at the book of Ecclesiastes. You want to read something depressing. The book of Ecclesiastes ends with this old guy whose teeth don't work and his eyes don't work and his nose doesn't work and his ears don't work and his legs don't work. I mean, the guy is a walking skeletal corpse. And you go, man, you know, who wants that? And then the writer says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come. And it talks about old age being this time of incredible nothingness. Emptiness of emptiness is all emptiness. But you know what Paul wanted believers to understand? You know what? If you listen when I'm talking to you from the word of God, when you're 80, you know what? You've only just begun. That's why I want you to be prudent. You see, as a New Testament believer, when you're 80, you've only just barely become a little tiny baby from God's perspective. You are on the threshold of real living because you have become a child of God through the gift of his grace. You know what that enables you to do when you get a hold of it? It enables you to handle a body that becomes sick and arthritic and hurt. And you're still able to have a soul that can give and that can love and that can help others. And you can still be involved with people. You know why? Because life hasn't run out of gas. Because you haven't lived just for human passion. You've lived for God's passions. And we need to generate a people that focus prudently, not just on this life, but they focus on eternal life. And therefore, they're able to say to the younger generation, here's how you live skillfully. Here's how you live prudently. Here's how you live under self-control. This is how you stay free of beclouding influences. And we're going to shine like the stars forever and ever and ever. You want to dream. What a dream. The neat thing about it is, it's true. It's all true. I want to challenge you. Are you going to be people that just continue to live under the beclouding influence of relative ethics and relative morality? 
Or are you going to be a group of people that focus on it and say, God, I believe you're there. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. I believe you have communicated inside of my life through your written word, right, and skill in life, and prudence. And I'm going to let your life flow through me. That's what you're going to have to decide. You have tremendous power resting in your life. The living Christ goes out with you. And he wants to take what you've learned from his word. It's an awesome task that I have. I want you to understand what a tremendous privilege it is to take this bread of life and just kind of break myself and try to pour it into you. But you know what I realize more and more? You can hear me speak year after year and it won't mean anything to you. You can get it all in your head. If it doesn't come out on your feet and your hands, if it doesn't make a kid on a date say, sorry, I know my hormones are surging. I know my blood pressure's up sky high. My heart's pounding through my head. No, I can't. I'm waiting. I'm waiting till my married first night when I've made a commitment because I'm going to live wisely. When somebody's at a party after, after work and they say, come on, go ahead and, you know, go ahead and get, you know, come on, drink with us. Go ahead. And, and you're from an alcoholic family. And you know, man, one of them could be deadly for you because you're from an alcoholic family. Man, you could just drop off the log until you're able to say, man, I, I remember what David said. Free from the clouding influences. Sorry, man. I'm your friend. Man, we'll go to ball games together, and man, I'll talk with you, and I'm here for you. I'm not rejecting you. I love you, but I can't drink. Sorry. Give me a Pepsi. Give me a Diet Coke. I'm sorry. Until you're able to do that, until you're able to be at work, and they say, man, can you change this report a little bit? No, it's true. What I wrote is true. Oh, come on. Just stretch a little bit until you say, sorry, I can't. What I wrote is true. Can't change it. When we start doing that, there will be a moving in the spirit of like we've never seen. And I believe it could be beginning to happen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one 888 668 7884